Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Dean Rogers. Welcome back to the Dean Rogers Show. Today, we have an incredibly special guest, Mr. Jason Harmon. What's up, Jason? Hey, Dean. Good to see you. Good to see you too, man. I'm super excited to have you on. You just gave a presentation recently that I just was spoon feeding myself because when when there's somebody that is talking about the economy, talking about the market with real data, then I'm just, I couldn't be more excited about it because there's there's too many people out there, the crash bros, everybody yeah. just throwing out a bunch of information that isn't backed by anything. So um, I'm incredibly excited to have you on today. Hey guys, welcome to the Dean Rogers Show, where we talk about real deals that we're doing and bring on awesome guests to talk about how they're finding success in their business to inspire and motivate you. Don't forget to like and subscribe. All right, see you on the show. For those that don't know Jason and are living under a rock, uh, I learned about Jason when I first got started investing, and he's been featured on so many different publications. You guys can check him out at jasonhartman.com. Um, see all the stuff that he's up to. He's the CEO of Empowered Investor, which is focused on helping people achieve financial freedom, what we're all looking for uh, through purchasing income, producing properties all across the nation. So has done an incredible amount of, of work there and also has the Creating Wealth podcast you should also check out. So Jason, I'm excited to have you on. You're actually going to be doing some show and tell today, sharing your screen. So yeah. let's dive into it, man. Let's talk about the market. What you think? All right. Sounds good. Well, thanks for having me, Dean. So uh, there are so many misconceptions out there nowadays in terms of the economy, the real estate market. And uh, I want to peel back the onion and tell people what's really going on based on real data and based on a lot of experience that I have um, being in this business for many decades, more than I care to admit. Uh, <laughs> so um, we will uh, we will kind of dive into that. And, you know, it's uh, it's just funny. First, I want to say how the human mind works. I mean, through eons of evolution, our our mind was trained to look for negative things because throughout history, really until the industrial revolution, the negative things could kill us, right? That could end our life either through starvation or, uh, you know, getting attacked by another human or an animal or whatever, right? So, you know, our mind is keenly uh, tuned to watch out for negative things and pay attention to them. Right. But now we live in this world of abundance. I mean, look at the obesity rates and we clearly have too much abundance. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, and so, you know, it's it's really a different world and, and the game has changed. And, uh, you know, uh, there's an old saying in the news media, if it bleeds, it leads. Right. And uh, sensationalism and clickbait that works. It works really well because of that propensity uh, for all of us to look for negative things. Right. But mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to the real estate market, uh, people are creating so many blind spots for themselves and missing so many opportunities because of this bias toward negativity. And uh, there's this whole uh, group of people uh, that, you know, at the, at the beginning of the COVID era, uh, we started calling them the crash bros, okay? These are the chicken little, the sky is falling people, you know, the, the Malthusians 
who Malthus was an economist like 250 years ago that thought, uh, you know, overpopulation would uh, end humanity because we'd run out of food. Well, clearly we didn't do that, right? And, mm -hmm. um, you know, this whole like scarcity mindset is really interesting. Um, so uh, the crash bros have been wrong, 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 wrong. And uh, I think you'll see from my talk today, I think they're gonna continue to be wrong for a while. They won't be wrong forever. There will always be cycles and corrections and adjustments. But so many people are equating this to the 2008 Great Recession, which was a lifetime event. That was the worst economy in seven decades. Okay, I'd been through several cycles before that. Okay, that was a, a special event. Okay, it was not mm -hmm. a normal thing. It was the worst economy we had since the Great Depression of the 1930s, which was obviously a historic event, right? So um, when we really look at what's going on, I think we will see there is a very different picture than be, is being uh, you know, portrayed in all the clickbait sensationalist headlines. So let's go ahead and dive in. And first, let's understand what is the business plan for governments and central banks? I always say that the two most powerful entities the human race has ever known are governments and central banks. The governments have standing armies and they work in tandem with the central banks like our Federal Reserve or the European Central Bank or the Bank of Japan or you know every country that has a central bank. And um, they, they, they control everything, okay? And our government and pretty much every other government um, is uh, working with the Federal Reserve or, or their central bank to uh, create an explosion of currency units. Uh, some people call it fiat money. That's what the dollar is. And fiat, that word simply means by decree or by authority. You know, the dollar has value because they say so, right? And we all have to believe it. <laughs> and uh, the government is very much in debt. It has overspent dramatically. And uh, it's in debt to the tune. And for those watching on video, I'll share my screen with you. This is the famous debt clock or the infamous debt clock, maybe, uh, that many people have seen and are familiar with. And normally this is a moving uh, thing if you visit the website, but I just took a screenshot of it here the other day. Over $32 trillion in debt. Oh and gosh. what's important though, Dean, is this one. Look down here, unfunded liabilities, $192 trillion, okay? And so what does this mean? Let's compare this. What is the economic output of the entire country every year? Well, it's, you know, it's about 23 trillion, 24 trillion dollars, something like that, okay? So if you, if you add these two together, you've got about 220 trillion dollars, right? That we have to somehow pay for. You cannot pay for this by raising taxes. That's impossible. The tax revenue every year for the government's about $4 trillion. There's, there's no way. You tax people at 100%, it would still take 11 years of, of everybody working just as hard as they work now and giving 100% of their money to Uncle Sam. Okay, that's not going to happen, obviously. And so uh, this equation doesn't work. So what does work? Well, I say that the business plan of governments and central banks is the same business plan that all of us as investors should follow. We should just follow their lead and do exactly what they're doing. You know, there's an old saying, if you can't beat them, join them. 
right? Mm. And so we're going to kind of join them through this strategy that I trademarked years and years ago. I've been teaching this for 18 years. It's called inflation-induced debt destruction. And Dean, this is the hidden wealth creator with income property. Because basically what happens is, uh, say, let's take an example. Say uh, someone listening to your show gets inspired and they decide they want to start building a portfolio. And they think, okay, well, I'm going to buy, uh, you know, I'm going to buy four or five houses. And say those four or five houses cost $1.2 million. And they get loans on those houses totaling a million dollars. Okay, so they got a million dollars in mortgages. They get their first mortgage statements, you know, uh, the first month of owning the property. And it says their balance is $1 million. And then five years goes by. And well, let's just say one year goes by and, or whatever time goes by, a year, two years, three years, whatever. And say there's 10% inflation that occurs during that time, which I think most people would say would happen in a year because the <laughs> official inflation numbers are a lie. Uh, you know, that's quoted by the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, and I call it the CP lie, okay? Because it's, it's <laughs> clearly manipulated, right? Yeah. And, and so that 10% inflation that occurs over whatever time period, basically literally just paid off $100,000 of your million dollars in mortgages because you borrow the money at today's value but you pay it back after inflation at a cheaper value. So that's inflation-induced debt destruction. And this is the hidden wealth creator that very few people really see or understand that's going on behind the scenes with a real estate investment. And um, you know, you can't really do it with anything else very well, okay? Because you can't get 30-year fixed rate debt on other, other assets. Um, you can't get rental income on other assets. You can't do this by buying gold or stocks or Bitcoin or really anything else. Income property is a very unique special asset class because it mm -hmm. has these multidimensional characteristics. And why would this be the business plan of the government? Well, we owe about a trillion dollars to China. And we have the reserve currency of the world, the U.S. dollar, meaning that's the currency that all international trade is denominated in, the US dollar. So if we inflate the value of our dollar away by 10% as a country, that means we get a $100 billion discount on that debt every time there's 10% inflation, whether it takes place in a year or three years, doesn't matter, right? It's a discount. So this is the path the government is likely to stick with, okay? Hmm. Now, inflation hurts most people. It impoverishes most people. It destroys their standard of living. I always like to say inflation destroys the value of stocks, bonds, and savings, but thankfully it also destroys the value of debt. Isn't that a beautiful thing? <laughs> if, so. if you use that leverage, uh, to your advantage and you're in, you're in the know, then yeah, that is beautiful. Yeah. And, and this is, this is that hidden wealth creator that's happening behind the scenes, but regardless of inflation induced debt destruction, let's just take a look at the market overall. Okay. Um, so this is a chart that I shared the other day when, uh, you saw me present, and this just shows you different assets 
a person might have and their strength versus inflation. And basically on the bottom, the worst assets are cash because that goes down in value with inflation. Bonds, same thing, pension income. Taxation is not um, really calculated property, properly against inflation. Uh, and that's a long explanation, so I'm not gonna go into that one today. Um, but job income, uh, you know, that's sort of medium strength because hopefully you get a cost of living increase at your job. Uh, your rental income on your properties, hopefully you raise the rental income at the rate of inflation. Uh, and then stocks usually perform about the rate of inflation, right? So they, they hedge inflation pretty well. Um, the, the high strength items, the gold bugs would tell you gold is the best, right? And uh, I'm definitely not a gold bug. Um, you know, I own some of it, sure, but you can't rent it out. You can't finance it over 30 years. And unlike income property, it gets terrible tax treatment when income property is the most tax favored asset class in America. And taxes are the single largest expense any of us have. Hmm. So that's great. Um, the mortgage, this is the hidden gem that I was just talking about, okay? Because this mortgage debt gets debased by inflation. It gets paid off by inflation. It's like free money that's happening behind the scenes. And then the value of the real estate is like gold hedged against inflation pretty well. Mm -hmm. Usually rises faster than the rate of inflation, okay? So, so that's that. I don't have time to go into the strength versus deflation at the moment, but when we look at the market, I think it's really important for people to understand why we have such low inventory. And yes, we do have very low inventory. And I don't have a chart to show you on this, but I'll just tell you, okay? Um, there are two major sources uh, that we use for inventory stats in terms of how many properties are in the market throughout the country. One is the National Association of Realtors, and I don't like their data because it includes contingent sales and pending sales, properties you really actually can't buy today, right? And it includes listed homes that are for sale that you could buy. So I use another data set uh, by a company called Altos that's been on my show several times, and they just count the for sale properties only. So their estimate I think is much more accurate. Uh, so if something's listed for sale in the MLS, it's counted. How many properties are there right now? About 465,000 listed for sale. Compared to what? How, how do we know what that means? Well, if I always like to liken the market uh, to a sink. So if everybody would think for a moment of their kitchen sink. So Dean, your kitchen sink, is it stainless steel or porcelain or what? What's it look like? Stainless steel, yep. <laughs> okay, stainless steel. So you got your kitchen sink there, you've got the big basin, you've got a drain, and you got a faucet. The faucet mm -hmm. represents the new properties coming onto the market, okay? The new listings that are coming up for sale. The basin of the sink represents the existing inventory of homes for sale. Now, 465,000, that's the existing inventory. The drain represents the buyers buying the properties, taking them out of the sink, taking them off the market because they're buying them or the absorption rate, okay? Mm -hmm. So what, what have we got going right now? Well, we have the faucet is on, but it's just barely trickling. Hardly any new properties are coming on the market. We've got the basin of the sink that if we consider that 
a normal market would be that the sink is full and a, a buyer's market where it's considered a bad market or a recessionary market or a bust or a crash would be the sink is overflowing. There's way too many properties for sale. Right. Okay. So what do we have now? The sink is about 35% full. A lot of empty space in that sink of mm -hmm. inventory that should be there to be at a normal market, but it's not there because we have an inventory shortage. Now the drain, interest rates almost tripled. Think about it. Think about how amazingly resilient real estate is, how strong this asset class is. Why do I say that? Because if, if the typical new buyer of an owner-occupied home is financing 90% of the purchase price and putting 10% down, and you take the cost of money on 90% of the value and almost triple it a year ago, and still we don't have a flood of properties on the market, we don't have an oversupply, we have the drain that is slightly plugged up because there is less demand with the higher rates. Now, normally, if that were to happen, the sink would start filling up and overflowing if the drain were plugged. Right. But the drain's only about 20% plugged. About 80% of it is still open and property is still being purchased, but 20% less demand, okay, approximately. I mean, it varies from market to market. That's just an overall number. Uh, and it varies from time to time, right? So that's what you've got. You've got a sink that's barely full, you've got a faucet at a trickle, and you've got a drain that's 20% plugged up with 80% open. And why is this? Why is the faucet at a trickle? Well, it's largely because of this chart. And this chart shows you that about 25% of the country has a mortgage at or below 3%. They have incredibly comfortable mortgage payments on a mortgage that cannot even come close to being replaced right now because it's so cheap. And about 65% of the country has a mortgage at or below 4%, also wow. very, very cheap. Yeah. These mortgages, Dean, have become a huge asset, not a liability, an asset that if you sell the house, you're going to lose the asset. And just ask everybody listening and, and you too, is it possible that some item that you possess can be worth more to you than it is to a new buyer buying it? Of course it is, right? You probably have some material object of sentimental value that is more valuable to you than it is to somebody else. You have your loved ones, maybe you have an animal, you know, that's more valuable to you than it is to some stranger who doesn't care about it, right? Okay, mm -hmm. so that's the way it is with all these houses that aren't for sale. They're much more valuable to the person that already owns them than they are to the market, right? If they put them on the market and they sold them, the value of that house might be worth $600,000 to the owner when you equate the cheap mortgage and only $500,000 to the buyer who has to get an expensive mortgage. So this is the thing we're in, and this is a lock-in. All of these houses, tens of millions of them are locked in with cheap mortgages. Uh, it's like the golden handcuffs, you know, they use in corporate America, the golden handcuffs, right? You're not gonna leave your job because they got the, some 
thing out in the future that they're going to give you, right? And mm-hmm. that's the golden handcuffs. And this is exactly what's going on with the real estate market. And these people have 28 years left on these mortgages. We're going to have an inventory shortage for a long time, in my opinion. So that's the state of the market. The only real amount of inventory is coming from new builds, new construction. And guess what? Investors like inexpensive properties. That's what you specialize in. That's what I buy. We like entry-level houses because those are the best rent-to-value ratios. No builder is building those properties. Virtually non-existent almost. I mean, almost non-existent. Show me, please, somebody. Where can I buy a brand new $200,000 home from a developer? (laughs) Crickets. It just doesn't exist. That's an entry-level home. The average new home price is $475,000. Wow. In this supposedly down market. (laughs) You know? I, I mean, it's just unbelievable, right? So we have a housing affordability problem and a housing shortage of epic proportions right now. It is, we're, our deficit is like 700,000 houses missing from the market, okay? And to just help people understand how bad these numbers really are, we got a country of thir- 332 million people. There's about 140 million housing units and only 465,000 of them are actually for sale. Out of 140 million, there's like yeah, nothing for sale. Just a fraction. Yeah, just a tiny fraction. So pretty incredible, huh? Yeah, it's pretty nuts. I mean, uh, you, you said it. What's the compelling reason to sell? There's there's a more compelling reason to keep the yeah. house, right? right. Um, and with the option of selling, right, if there's some sort of equity that was gained, if they need to live somewhere else, which they do, that next house is going to be more expensive. Yeah. Not only the price, but the actual cost of the money, the mortgage right. payment. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So here's a business opportunity uh, for people. If anyone is interested in getting into the home remodeling business, that's probably got a pretty good future because all of these tens of millions of people aren't going to want to sell their houses. So if they have extra money, they're going to remodel the kitchen. They're going to remodel the bathrooms. They're going to add a bedroom. They're going to put a master bedroom upstairs, right? So they're stuck unless interest rates come back down near where they were before. If that happens, then yes, they're not stuck anymore and they'll sell. But guess what? They're going to buy something else to take advantage of the cheap rates. And that increased housing affordability, which housing affordability right now, is it like the lowest level in 37 years? It's terrible because the cost of money went up so much. So what does that do? That means these people, there's the the choice. They got to buy or rent or be homeless. So they're going to rent. And so every 1% drop in the home ownership rate equals about 1 million more tenants that need to rent something. Okay. So if you are a buy and hold landlord investor, (laughs) rents are going up, folks. I mean, you know, they have temporarily uh, 
you know, decelerated a bit to like the pre-pandemic levels. They're still rising, but not as much as they were before. And in the apartment market, which is suffering a lot because there was just too much inventory built and a lot of it hitting the market at the same time, uh, rents are definitely softening in apartment complexes, but not single family homes. Okay. And I say the rents in single family homes are going up a lot more than they are today. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, here's another thing that's important to understand. Uh, there, in a country as large, in the, as large as the United States, there's no such thing as a housing market. There's no such thing as a national housing market. There's no such thing as a real estate market. It's too big of a country. We have over 400 metropolitan, or about 400 metropolitan areas. We have about 3,100 counties, over 9,000 cities, and countless neighborhoods. There's a saying, which I'm sure you've heard, maybe you've said it yourself, all real estate is local. Okay, mm -hmm. all real estate is local. So um, it's just too big a country to have a housing market. There's just a lot of different markets. But I think you can categorize them into three major types. Linear markets, cyclical markets, once my screen cooperates here, and hybrid markets. Okay, so the linear markets are the ones we like to invest in. They're the slow and steady and profitable. The cyclical are the markets that are a roller coaster where you live and where I live, cyclical markets. You live in San Diego, I live in Palm Beach, Florida, both cyclical markets. Mostly, you probably like to live in cyclical markets because those are nicer areas, yeah. but you want to invest in linear markets because those are much more stable and the cash flow right. is so much better. Okay. So let me just give you some examples. These are markets we've done tons of business in over the years, okay? So Memphis, Tennessee. I've helped hundreds and hundreds of investors buy properties here. I've owned many there myself. That is a boring linear market. If you're looking at a chart of appreciation over time, it just kind of chugs along. It's not, not too exciting. Indianapolis, another one of our markets, same story. Boring linear market. Okay, we love these markets. They're great for investment. Here's where I grew up, right near you, Los Angeles. This is a cyclical market. Look at the chart. It's up, down. It's a crazy roller coaster, right? So linear, cyclical, hybrid just means in between the two. Most of the country is a linear market. Most of the world is a linear market. But cyclical markets tend to get all the attention. And Dean, before I move on, any thoughts or questions? Yeah. So, uh, you know, you talked about the linear markets, you talked about the cyclical markets. Uh, it's getting my mind spinning here thinking about a couple of things. So we talked about the market, right? It doesn't seem like you think the market's going to crash. Not yet. Okay. Someday. So, so what are your thoughts then? You know, like we keep hearing about the 10 to 12 year cycle of, yeah. of a run up on a market. And then a crash and the crash happens for two years, starts to reboot, starts to pick up steam and another 10 or 12 years in a crash. We're overdue for a crash according to the numbers. Yeah, but I've, I've heard that before. So uh, here's what I say. That's sort of the Austrian school business cycle theory is where that kind of comes from, right? Mm -hmm. And um, uh, you know, the past does not equal the future, okay? Um, that whole cycle idea, um, you know, I think you have to really chart that uh, from uh, pr properly, right? We went in such a low during the Great Recession, 2008, okay? That I don't think you can really start that clock until about 2012 when things normalized a bit, number one. And then COVID 
was such an anomaly and changed things so much because we saw literally, believe it or not, I'm going to say this, the lowest interest rates in 5,000 years. <laughs> I know. You think I'm nuts, <laughs> right? Uh, there actually is a great book. Um, I wanted to interview this guy on my show. I've had many great authors and thought leaders on my show over the years on my podcast and YouTube channel, but um, this is uh, this one passed away, and I didn't get him on the mm. show before he he had an untimely demise. Uh, David Graeber wrote a fantastic book called Debt: The First Five Thousand Years. It's a really good read. I highly recommend it. Debt: The First Five Thousand Years. Okay, and there are interest rate surveys going back to ancient Egypt. Believe it or not. So that was the lowest interest rates in 5,000 years during COVID. And that just reset everything. That just changed everything, okay? So, uh, you know, that idea that, you know, the market's long in the tooth and it's time for a correction, you know, it depends. I mean, look, if, we, if, if inventory was overflowing, we would be having a correction, but it's, we're far from that far from it. Okay. Uh, so let me share with you a couple other uh, visuals that I think will be valuable. So this is just another way of expressing that chart I showed you earlier about the distribution of mortgages, of existing mortgages out there. What are the interest rates on those mortgages, right? You see here in the blue, we have a lot of people below 3%. A whole bunch more below 4%. And we have hardly anybody at rates at, you know, hovering around 6%. Very few people have those mortgages. But here's what I didn't tell you before that is also very important. Um, number one, if you want to have a real estate crash, there is one ingredient you must have. And that is millions of distressed sellers. Mm. So very unlikely to get much distress with super low interest rates, with very affordable mortgages. But what I didn't tell you is that 42% of the country has no mortgage at all. They are free and clear. It's really hard to go into foreclosure when you don't have a mortgage. And it's also really hard to go into number. foreclosure and be a desperate seller when your mortgage is 3 or 4%. Yeah. Okay. But you know what makes it even harder is the next chart when you have a lot of equity. <laughs> and there's a lot of equity in the market right now. In addition to the 42% of people who have no mortgage at all, let's look at the folks that do have mortgages and see what their loan to value ratio is. You see that the vast majority of the country has 40% or more equity in their house. They have a lot of equity. Wow. They have a lot of skin in the game. They have a lot of reason not to walk away from that. If you go back to the Great Recession and leading up to it in 2005, 2006, 2007, people had no equity. They, they had loans that they got by lying. Their income wasn't verified. Their, their credit didn't matter much. Okay. I mean, the whole mortgage market back then was built on fraud. Anybody who's taken out a mortgage since the Great Recession knows that it is insanely difficult to get a loan. They know that those banks have learned their lesson and the vast, vast, vast majority, 95% of these loans are so tightly underwritten that these borrowers out there are just high quality borrowers. 
and they have a lot of equity in the property. Okay, look at the rest of this. These people have um, 61 to 70% LTV on their property. Hardly anybody is underwater. This is the red over 100% or more, you know, meaning that they're over leveraged. You can't even see it on the chart. There's like nobody has that problem, right? And 91 to 100% uh, LTV, you know, you got a small number of those, but hardly any. This is not, if all of these people and those people and even these people went into foreclosure, that wouldn't be enough to have the sink overflow in my metaphor, right? Oh, yeah. So you just don't have a problem with equity. You don't have a problem with expensive mortgages. Um, and look at this one. This is the credit scores of mortgage holders at time of origination. These are golden, high quality borrowers. Look at all the people that had a credit score, a FICO score of 760 or more. I mean, that's an insanely good FICO score. Mm -hmm. Look at them. <laughs> this, is, this is the vast majority of the mortgage holders out there. And then there's another big swath, 720 to 759. That's a golden credit score too. And then you get into some of the lower scores and you see hardly any of the mortgages have these lower credit scores. If you looked at this chart back to the Great Recession, which we can do, you see here, look at how different it looks than today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Much better quality borrowers. So the likelihood of having millions and millions of distressed sellers dumping their properties onto the market is very, very low, okay? The population trends say that there is a massive amount of demand for to purchase homes and to rent homes. Uh, the immigration shows us that too. Uh, you know, here's owner-occupied housing units in the United States, 83 million of them. Okay, uh, you know, the share of homes purchased by investors, lots of investors interested in the market. Um, this is an interesting article I clipped. This is from Calculated Risk, which is a great source. Inflation-adjusted house prices are 3.6% below their peak in the Great Recession. Everybody thinks they're so expensive, but you adjust for inflation, and they're actually cheaper. Hmm. Okay? And look at this. This really is a super important chart because this shows the construction of houses right, of new home construction. And you can see that leading into the Great Recession, we were overbuilding. There were just way too many homes and not enough demand. But since then, the money for development dried up, the builders got very cautious and very conservative, and there has been 13 straight years where construction is below the half century average. So that's the shortage, a massive shortage of new homes. And Dean, like we were talking about earlier, this shortage is so much more acute, so much more pronounced, so much worse in the entry-level housing market. Everything we've talked about is just the overall market. It includes million-dollar houses. It includes $2 million houses. It includes $800,000 houses. Show me the glut of supply of $300,000, $400,000 houses even, if you even call those entry level, right? Um, there is just a massive shortage of these properties. Um, so I'll show you one more thing. 
this is a software I've been using for years. I liked it so much. I actually bought the company and it's called Property Tracker. It's free. So anyone listening can just go get this free software, propertytracker.com. And um, you can make these great performers on any property. It takes like just a, a minute to evaluate a property. You'll become very good at evaluating deals, whether they're good, bad, so-so, nice. whatever, right? Just go to propertytracker.com, get this software, and it just gives you all of the numbers in one simple performa. And uh, look at this one. This is a property we have for sale now. It's a brand new property, okay, in one of our really hot Alabama markets, okay, brand new house. And um, it is just 265000 bucks, and it's got a projected return on investment of 34% annually. Now, a lot of people think, oh my gosh, is this guy kidding? If they don't know how to do the math, they think that's outrageous, right? What, what, who's earning 34%? Well, real estate investors are because income property has multi-dimensional returns. You earn your return in a lot of different ways. I mean, think about it. When someone buys uh, cryptocurrencies or precious metals or non-dividend paying stocks, that is a one-dimensional game. The whole game, buy low, sell high. End of discussion. That's it, right? If that doesn't happen, you're not making money. Dividend-paying stock, buy low, get some dividends in between, sell high. Then you're winning, right? Two dimensions. But income property, multi-dimensional. Leverage, income, mortgage, principal reduction, mortgage pay down by your tenant, inflation-induced debt destruction, tax benefits. I mean, it's just such a great investment. It's just multidimensional. It's the most historically proven asset class in the entire world. So um, I hope that really helps people kind of understand uh, what's going on in the market and why it hasn't crashed and why it does not look like there is any crash on the horizon. Um, certainly there will be someday, Things always change. The pendulum goes back and forth. But right now, I, there's no inventory. <laughs> okay. So uh, that's where we are. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, again, I think all the information, all the data, uh, the history behind it, the reasons why is why I enjoyed your presentation so much and why I thought it was going to be so valuable for the listeners because uh, you got you to support what you're saying with facts and the facts are, is that, you know, there's the golden handcuffs on most of the people in home, home ownership right now and the quality of the borrowers and the inventory levels, everything that you went through just supports the fact that the market's going to be probably not only stable, but continue to appreciate. Right. Um, now, what are your thoughts? Maybe we can end with this and, and hear your theories. What are your thoughts on interest rates? I know this is another oh, hot topic. What are your the, thoughts on that's that? That's the hardest one of all. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I have made a lot of predictions on my show over the years, and my podcast has been running for 18 years now. So people can just go back and listen to episode number 37, right? And And they can see if I was right or if I sounded like an idiot, right? The only major thing I predicted that I didn't get right was interest rates. And they are super hard to predict because they're not, yeah. they're not really, you, you can't predict them based on market forces. We have a centrally planned economy 
and the chairman of the Federal Reserve controls the interest rates, mm -hmm. okay, and the FOMC. So it's really hard to predict interest rates, but I'll, I'll give you a source for interest rates, and that's um, uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer. That's sort of the, um, you know, the big wig in the interest rate world, okay? You might want to get him on your show if you can. I haven't been able to get him, uh, but Good luck. <laughs> um, anyway, there, there's a, a, you know, an expensive newsletter that, uh, you know, does some interest rate forecasting and stuff. But if I have my, you know, my two cents on it, uh, I would say uh, that the Fed might raise one more time. I think they're crazy. I, I think they should have pivoted already. And then they will push us into a formal recession at some point. And then they'll pivot and they'll start lowering rates again. And I think mortgage rates will settle somewhere in the 5% range, somewhere in that ballpark. If I, if I had to guess, that's where it would be. But, um, you know, it's very hard to predict interest rates. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I can tell you what's going to happen with prices, with rents, um, supply and demand, uh, but interest rates are really tough. But, you know, here's the thing. It, most of the people when they talk about real estate they talk about it in terms of prices right like what are, what are the prices going to go up or down right and that's myopic the reason is is that if you are a buy and hold investor which is the best kind of investor to be in my opinion you don't really care that much what you care about is yield cash flow income what are those doing? And I teach a strategy that people can, they can just go to jasonhartman.com, type in three dimensions of real estate on my search engine on my website, on jasonhartman.com, and listen to the episodes where I talk about this. I teach this strategy that um, prices and rents are non-correlating indicators. And so when you see the housing market booming and people uh, first-time buyers moving out of the rental pool into the buying pool and buying their first home, then you tend to see rents soften. But when you see uh, not many people buying, either because of lack of inventory or low affordability, then you see generally prices soften, which is not doing now. I mean, prices have gone up about 8% year over year. Right, as everybody said, oh, there's going to be a crash. I can't wait till it's thirty percent cheaper. I'm going to buy everything. Yeah, you missed out. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, crash, bro. You know your your chicken little philosophy just hasn't worked for you in fifteen years. Congratulations, you totally missed out. Right, <laughs> the the you know investors. Guess what investors do? They invest. Mm, go <laughs> you know, like that's what they do. Right, they just look for the best deal they can at the time when they've got extra capital and they invest, hmm. right? They just constantly do that. And all these other folks are trying to time the market and they're just wrong over and over again and they just keep missing out. And um, most of them are just jealous. And so, you know, they go on my YouTube channel and they troll me and they write how stupid I am. And, you know, and, and they're just jealous because they missed out and everybody else got rich who took <laughs> action, who had the confidence, the courage, you know, and, and they, they got in the game, you know, they just keep missing out. So uh, that's, that's the human condition, unfortunately. But what you see when, when you have this soft buying market is you see more upward pressure on rents. Remember that number. Every 1% decline in the homeownership rate is 1 million new renters. Hmm. It, it, unless you decrease the supply of people 
or increase the supply of housing, it doesn't matter what they do with interest rates so much. It doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. People have to have a place to live, right? That's it. Okay. And a common mistake, Dean, people make is they make this mistake of thinking, well, Jason, okay, so if the prices are so high and affordability is so low, well, how are people going to be able to afford to buy a house and support the market? Or how are they going to be able to uh, afford to rent a house and rent it from me? Well, here's the mistake they're making. It's a giant mistake. They keep assuming it's the same person right? They assume the person today that affords $1,500 a month in rent, when you raise your rent and their income stagnates and they keep falling behind, they can no longer afford your house and they have to move down the socioeconomic ladder. And a new person that was higher on the ladder moves down into your house. Hmm. And the same thing happens in the rental market or the buying market inflation is the destroyer of wealth for these people. It, it enriches people who understand it and it destroys people who don't understand it. So they simply, their standard of living is diminished. They have a lower standard of living and it's a terrible, sad thing, but it's just the way it is. That's what inflation does to people. It's a, it's a, it's a thief. It destroys their yeah. standard of living. Well, a closing thought here that, um, stood out to me when you talked about the inflation induced debt destruction. Um, it's completely out of our control. You know, the economy around uh, the central banks and government and how they move the economy with inflation and with interest rates and all of that is completely out of our control. But if we know how to play the game, then we can come out on the other side yep. in a, in uh, in a good position. So go buy income producing assets right? Real estate. Yeah. And uh, that'll put you in a good spot. Yeah. And use property tracker to analyze them. Just go get a free account. I mean, you know, we have paid accounts. You can pay like 30 bucks a month or whatever. Uh, but, you know, with a free account, you can do lots of stuff. Okay. You can analyze deals. Um, you know, the one advice is uh, the property must make sense the day you buy it. Mm -hmm. Amen to that. It, okay. Yep. And Dean, you, that's what you teach your people. And yep. All the people, all the horror stories you hear in real estate are people that bought a property that didn't make sense the day they bought it. They right. were expecting something extraordinary to happen, a bunch of appreciation that didn't happen. And, you know, things went badly, right? So just buy good, sensible properties and keep doing that over time. You all know lots of people who've gotten rich in real estate. You probably don't know anybody who got rich in the stock market or got rich buying gold or you know, anything else, right? But you know, lots of people that got rich in real estate. Why do you think that is? Because it's a special kind of asset class. Yeah. Reach it. All right. Well, again, thanks so much for coming on, Jason. It's been an absolute pleasure. For those that want to connect with Jason, follow him, uh, get some more information, go to jasonhartman.com. And until next time, peace. Happy investing.